Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. Welcome, Vincent Gelozo. How you doing? Hi, how you doing? Good, man. Good. Um, I'm here with Vincent Gelozo, the great economist, uh, French-Canadian economist, now at George Mason University. Um, before we, you know, the objective of this podcast is to, I want to talk mainly about your work about French Canada, Quebec, and what you call its convergence with the rest of Canada and North America and some of the history and then some of the current challenges. And, you know, uh, that's kind of what I want to focus on. But before we get going, do you want to tell people listening a little bit about yourself, your background and anything you just want to point out? I don't know. Uh, I can say that uh, I'm an assistant professor of economics at George Mason University, but I was born and raised in uh, Montreal. Well, not exactly Montreal, the South Shore. So basically in St. Lambert, the small English enclave uh, on the uh, south side of Montreal. So I grew up there, went to University of Montreal, did my undergraduate degrees there. Uh, dad's an immigrant, mom's a French Canadian, uh, did my master's and PhD in the UK at the London School of Economics. Uh, and then I've been uh, roaming around uh, in academia for uh, more than a decade now, weirdly enough. Yeah, it's you've, uh, your CV is really impressive when I go through it. I mean, it's University of Montreal and... Uh, that doesn't count. Like, yeah. That doesn't count. I just, yeah. I, it's not, I, I went there because it was convenient. It's right. not, nothing yeah. against yeah. the institution. It's just, I, I applied there because I was, I lived next, I, I lived closer to it than the other right. ones. Right. Um, and yeah, it's well, not... The London I, School of Economics, is that the top school in the world for economics? Is it fair no, to say that? No, no, no. It's uh, <clears throat> the top ones are the usual suspects, uh, Harvard, Princeton, MIT, Stanford. Uh, LSE is very, very high in the ranking, but it's not in the top five. It's mm. it's like a top 20, I think I would I would call it. Uh, okay. uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because it, it seems to have a very, very good reputation. One of the things that I remember about it is that one of its alumni, or at least a person who studied there, is Mick Jagger. Yes, yes. So you're in good company. I, right? I was af I was afraid I was afraid you'd go and uh, go to Jacques Parizeau and uh, <laughs> and uh, compare me with him. I was like, yeah, no, I'm not sure. It's the the comparison I I enjoy most, <laughs> but I will take Mick Jagger. I will take Mick Jagger. Yeah, we're going to come back to Parizeau later in the podcast when we talk about... Nothing against him. It's just I don't want to be compared to anyone. Yeah, oh, no. Who would be? Who would no. want to be? I mean, the guy's he... this pompous, you know? <laughs> right. I, actually, I would be... I'd be... I actually... I just dislike politicians on average. Right. I think right. I have... I have a dis... I have a discomfort with the exercise of, of seeking power. Uh, and so that makes me uncomfortable with being compared to politicians. Yeah. I think said of all the politicians I've seen, Jacques Parizeau is probably one of the smartest uh, that 
that I've observed and probably also one of the most principled ones. Uh, agree or not, uh, he was by far probably one of the most impressive out there, still under the caveat that uh, seeking power is not something that proper people should do. Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree with you about his intelligence. He was very smart. It's a bit like Pierre, uh, Pierre Trudeau. As you may disagree with him, but he, you can't you can't disagree with his in, intellectual capacity, right? You know, yes, that's my view. And least. other uh, types of capacity, like being mean, rude, yeah, <laughs> conniving and conniving, uh, yeah, know, a few right. Of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so let's that, not let's not dwell on politicians. No, no, I, I, I don't want to. Yeah, I I, I want it only in as much as it connects to the people of Quebec and the economy of Quebec and Canada later. You know what I mean? Like yep. that's not now, but just like in the podcast, I, the politics sort of intersect there because they have an effect, right? But um, okay, um, I just before we get on to the whole topic about you know the convergence and all that stuff, um, I just wanted to tell our listeners a little bit about how we met because there's kind of a well, first of all, there's sort of a six degrees of separation going on. Do you remember how we met? Do you remember that? I want to say Generation Screwed in Montreal at one point hosting an event. We, we actually, no, it, it was it was because I drive Uber on the side. Oh, and I was yes. driving Uber. Yes. Yeah, and, yes. and I picked you up. You remember? Yes. I remember. Yeah. I remember this. This was uh, you had the 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 Uber pig. The no, Uber no, there was a there was a guy who picked me up. He had he had an account. Uh, that was when Uber was still controversial. Yes, yes. It was day. about 2016, 2017, something like that. Yeah. And the guy had, um, so I, I remember from the, I remember the car ride, but I think I'm mixing two car rides together now. And actually I'm merging two people into one, but that other driver had an account on uh, Instagram. He called it Uber Picks. <laughs> and it was his way of defiantly saying that he had the right to carry people around who were willing to be carried around. And uh, if you agreed with him uh, that he had the right to do this and you had the right to hire him, uh, you could take a picture of him with the a little um, uh, marionette of a pig. And he would put it on Instagram and uh, you'd be a member of the Uber Pigs Club. And uh, I joined that club very heartily. That's amazing. And so that's a different driver. That's not me, but that's really cool. Oh, yeah. It's I'm time is time has flown by. So I'm yeah. starting at this point <laughs> in my life where my brain starts mixing stories together. Yeah, so oh for sure. It, yeah. Maybe I'm aging too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I wanted to mention too that um I can tell by the way you're talking about Montreal and Quebec that you're you're used to talking to people who are not familiar with Quebec. Um you know, explaining where St. Lambert is and stuff like that. Many of the people listening to this are going to be my students who are, they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a language course, an advanced course, and it's in business. Um, so they're, they're going to be familiar. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because my students are somewhat familiar with some of the things that you've studied. Um, so I just wanted to say that you don't need to be so, um, what's the word, Expl you know, explaining about some of the that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Sense. okay. Yeah. Okay. No, um, what happened was I, I, I picked you up downtown 
and you got in the car and 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 this was back as you said uber at this point was um had only been in quebec for about two maybe three years at most maybe even less i started in 2015 when it was less than a year um and at that time we had to kind of run around and hide and people would sit in the front of the car to make it look oh, like oh yes human, right? i remember this yeah oh, you're bringing me back yes i remember going in the front but also uh, asking each other details about each other that way because in the, case a cop yeah yes i remember that and we would pretend that you were just my buddy yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I i i forgot this was uh the extent that that was probably the most subversive thing i've had the luxury to do in my life <laughs> well it, it's really it really it touches on a lot of what you and i um both believe about e e economics and the human person that it's such an infringement on a, on a person's freedom to tell them that they can't drive somebody else somewhere and accept a small payment for it. Like, is that fair to say? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, so I would phrase it a bit differently. Uh, I, in while in, whilst in agreement, I would say that I understood why there was uh, aggressiveness towards Uber in general. Uh, and that is the result of the fact that taxi drivers who were being competed against by by Uber uh, were forced to buy licenses at very dear fees or rent them at very dear fees. And they had been playing by a set of rules that the government had imposed and bad rules, but still uh, rules per se. And they felt that, A, they were their living standards were were falling because of this, because you were shifting demand out of the usual channels, but they were still playing by the rules. And I understood the opposition people had to this, but they, uh, the, the, I think a more proper, I think that the thing I would emphasize is that the issue was not the use of, of Uber. It was the fact that we had required taxi drivers to acquire a piece of paper giving them the right to use their property as they saw fit uh, to carry people around. And uh, that was also well above and beyond what you would consider like normal safety concerns. You don't need, uh, you don't need quantitative limits on the number of cab drivers. If like you're concerned about say safety, you can just have a, you can just have every driver register that they're being drivers, but there's no quantitative limit. There is, it's just like a business license fee. Like you just go and register, have a company, you have a number and your car is associated with that. It That should have been the extent of the regulations uh, that should have existed in Quebec. And I think that's the greater transgression. The greater transgression was not the state trying to crack down on Uber. It was that the state initially created taxi regulations the way they existed and then decided to keep going and extending these these violations of property rights. Yeah, no, I, it, it, you're quite right. Um, I would just maybe illustrate some of what you're saying so perhaps some of the people listening could understand. Most people don't understand what a taxi license is. Oh, yeah, they, I forgot. They, this they, they, yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah, they, 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 they think that it's just some sort of thing that you get. And then you, what the government ha has done in Quebec and in pretty much everywhere else in North America that I'm aware of is that it's either the city or the province or the state creates a certain number. So one way to com to compare it might be if, if let's say the government of Quebec said on the island of Montreal, there can only be 100 dépanneurs, right? 
Yep. So yeah, and so so then then you'd have to get a license to run one of those, and then the that the value of that license would be relatively high because there's only a hundred of them instead of thousands, right? Because then yes. it would mean that you if there's only a hundred depths on the island of Montreal, what could the, those depths do? They could raise prices, right? Yes. Because people would need to go to those ones, and the guys who had those, right? So that's what the situation was like. It was like there were these one hundred taxis let's say i mean i know there are more but just to, so people can understand and and the, the, so the value of getting the right to drive a taxi at that time it varied around the island of montreal um the highest was laval um it was around two hundred and eleven thousand dollars to buy a taxi license in laval um montreal east for some reason had the lowest like i think it was like one hundred and twenty thousand, but it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy this thing. And if you couldn't buy it, as you said, you had to rent it from a guy who had bought it in 1975, right? Uh, you know, and that person might be sitting at home watching daytime TV while he collected a rent from a Haitian immigrant who was driving. Yeah. So, taxi, so, so let's just, right? let's just like we, we can tell the story of how this regulation started. So in 1973, the provincial government, and there had been a temp by the city of Montreal, for example, for a long time. Whatever the number of people who had legal rights to drive a cab at in 1973, they kept that right, but no extra licenses would be issued. Uh, that meant that you can picture what the population of Montreal was back then. It was 50 years ago. It's 50, 50 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. So you have richer Montrealers over those 50 years. That means demand goes up because people are wealthier. Uh, but also there's more Montrealers, period. So what do you think happens to the price of a license? The price of a license went up, so it was costlier for people to acquire the right to operate. And by the way, that right uh, had to be paid uh, once paid. Uh, it was not the right for a car, right? It was different. There was another permit you had to get. You had to get a permit of taxi. It was a, a right of ownership. Notice, like, this is a very important distinction in words. It was a right of ownership of a taxi. So you had the right to own a taxi, not the right to be a taxi. You then had to do an extra step, which was to acquire another license, which was itself very costly. Uh, but this is what this was meant as a restriction on people's ability to use their vehicles to provide services because one of the complaints that it existed from cab drivers uh, is especially when there were big international events. So you can go and look at, for example, when um, uh, uh, the International Exposition, Expo 67 was in town, uh, a lot of people uh, illegally offered cab services in Montreal huh. Interesting. Uh, because there was a great inflow of people coming in. And what you had is a average people knowing full well that the man who had a surge at that particular point in time for a well-advertised uh, international event. So you had people offering uh, cab services, but these were like ordinary Montrealers with their own particular vehicles and they just ferried people around. Uh, they even organized small activities of this. Uh, and there were mentions of this in, uh, in the La Presse or other newspapers Um and uh, uh, established cab drivers didn't really like that. They lobbied the government, got the restrictions and uh, the, the the permits of ownership. But the result was that the permits of ownership only benefited, and that's really important, only benefited the first players. 
Yeah. Once the laws were passed, if you had the license in 73, you got it for free. It was grandfathered in. And you would keep the license uh, afterwards and you could sell it to the next person. But because the man that had gone up for taxi services, you could sell the right of ownership at a higher price. And then you'd basically be passing on a hot potato because the guy who bought it at a much higher price, he has to not lose his capital. He has to hope that he's going to sell it for himself at a higher price afterwards. And then that guy has to make the same hope and et cetera, et cetera. And it's a highly vicious circle. And what happened is that you had cab drivers with mortgages of a quarter of a million dollars just for the right to operate was essentially a very low fixed entry cost activity because they had to they had to acquire a legal right to uh I should even say right, a legal privilege. That's yeah, be yeah it's better to a use legal, the word privilege, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is there's a connotation in the word rights. Um uh, uh, they had to acquire a legal privilege to operate that service. And their only hope to pay that mortgage was to be able to sell the permit in the future at somebody else at a higher price than what they had purchased it for. Yeah. So this system, it, it technically still exists, you know, just to close the loop on this. Um, there are still taxi licenses. One of the things that I think a lot of people didn't quite understand, too, is that taxis and Ubers are not exactly the same. They're very similar, but they're not identical, you know. Um, taxis are more anonymous. You can pay cash in a cab. You can't pay cash in an Uber. Um, taxis can do certain things Ubers can't do. You know, the the the, the lanes on, on, on the 20 going to the airport, there's these taxi lanes. You can fly by the traffic. I can't drive in those. Right. I have to be I have to hump it with all the traffic or whatever. So if I have a person in my Uber, they have to sit in the traffic. Right. So anyway, these are small distinctions. But um, what happened was after all the, the warring went on between the government and the, you know, it, it really was crazy. I, I had um, Jean-Nicolas. I'm blanking on his name. He was the head of Uber Quebec. I had him in my car twice. And so I had him explaining a lot of the stuff of what they were trying to do with the with the government and everything. Finally, they came to a deal. And Uber is basically Uber is now um, regulated the same as taxis in the sense that we have to go and get it's a class five license, I believe, or a force. Anyway, you know, the same as a taxi has to get, you know, it's like a, it's a test, you know, to make sure that you are a good driver. They do background checks, which Uber had been doing all along anyway. I mean, Uber had always done police checks of its drivers. And the the requirements to check the vehicles have been increased up to the level of the taxi because Uber had a very simple uh, mechanical verification. But it's basically been regulated and there was a buyback. Are you, are you aware of this, that there was a buyback? I believe it was $40,000 for those who wished to sell their permits. Uber Uber collected the money together as part of the deal to pay taxi owners uh, taxi license owners um i believe it was yeah without, without extending ourselves too much on this uh, yeah no i know we could spend a lot of time on this topic i know i know i don't want to i, I, I want to about... finish it up but i just thought i'd close with that it's basically been solved but i i would ahead. point out that the the issue was never whether or not the regulations that existed should be repealed and that the market should have been liberalized the regulations were doing tremendous harm uh the new technologies were far superior the only question that had been on the table was how to exit without hurting too many people the current 
or than current bad system of regulation. Right. The only issue right. was the how, not the if. Uh, and that was, uh, I won't lie, I had back and forth in my mind on this uh, because some people did legally acquire a right that was supposed to be transferable. So uh, the government created a transferable privilege that was a form of property. Uh, but once created, uh, abolishing them meant dis dispossessing people of an asset, which amounts to a, a takings by, yeah. by government, yeah. and uh, which is unacceptable. And it's the how do you exit the system like that is always more painful than than anything else but it doesn't mean you shouldn't end it the issue yeah. is the how never the if do you think it was fair i think it was 40 or forty-five thousand dollars. i forget like the details of yeah that. but do you think that was a that seemed reasonable to me that's you know for i don't know um i don't i i it's been long it's been five yeah. years now my son was <laughs> sure. born the same day that the the day after I testify in a parliamentary. Oh, meeting. is that right? <laughs> yeah, the day okay, after. Wow. <laughs> like I went back to Montreal after he was born. I went to Quebec City. My first son. My first son was born the day right after I testified. Or wow, a few days after. I'm not sure anymore, but it was like not long after. Uh, so I won't lie. The last five years have been a flurry with the kids that I didn't keep up with that yeah, particular yeah, aspect of policy. That's amazing. You were you were testifying there. Okay. So let's move on a little bit. Um, one final thing I'll say, just one sort of a bit of a joke, was that you, you got in the car and we started driving. We went, and for some reason, you started talking in English to me. And I know you're a Francophone. And, and that was I, most of the time, Francophones Saint, don't do it's that. because of yeah. St. Lambert. St. Lambert is half French. Half right. French. Okay. Yeah. Right. My parents are half French, half English. Okay. Right. Yes. Okay. And my mom is from a kid. Well, actually, you could say my mom is half French, half English because she's Acadian. Okay, right. She's uh, what's that called? Uh, Shiak? Is that Shiak. Uh, the yep. language they speak there in New Brunswick? Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. My mom's from uh, my mom's from Shediak. Okay. Nice. Wow. Okay. Cool. Uh, so, and and we were driving, and, and I, we started talking, and you mentioned you were an economist, and so I, you know, and all this, and, and I somehow I started explaining some of my my views about. Uh, you know, like I'm a, I'm a classical liberal or a libertarian or whatever. And I remember you looked at me and you were like, this is amazing. Like, I remember, I remember, you remember that? I remember this now more and more clearly as we're talking. Yeah. Uh, and you told me about now for your auditors, this is not going to be your listeners. It's not going to be particularly interesting, but I'll just say it really. You mentioned Mike Geta to me. Yeah, I possibly did. Yeah. Because Mike, he, yeah. Mike had been and is still is a great friend. And when you said that, I was like, okay, yes, this guy really is on the same side of the fence I am. It's yeah. Mike Getta, Mike Mike Getta um is, is quite the a singer. character. Not not the singer. Not yeah, the that's singer. right. Not David Getta. Yeah, uh, sorry, sorry. Yes. Like, yeah. You see how little I know about Yeah, that. David Getta is the French DJ. Um who, who's a, yeah. Okay. Uh yeah, Mike Mike has a tagline that we could close the loop on this with is that his thing that he says is that government must be destroyed, right? The government causes all these <laughs> kinds of problems and <laughs> right? Like intervening in, in people's right to exchange. Mike is very radical. Yeah, and, he is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And also for a radical, very and this is a lesson for if you have some listeners who are a bit more radical in their reflex. Uh, it's it's possible to be a radical without being a complete, uh, you know what, to people. 
That's uh, right. Mike is yeah. insanely cordial, insanely polite, uh, even to people who disagree with him. Uh, this ability to uh, civil, civilly disagree is probably Mike's greatest skill. Yeah, it's he really is a, a testimony to a person can be an extremist and openly admitted and also function well in the world with other people. Yep. You know, yep. it's it's really an incredible testimony to, I think, and he's a very good person. Yeah. Okay. Um. So let's move on. Yeah. I I read a, a good part of um because you gave me a bunch of your books at one point when you were yes. leaving. Yep. So was, I thank you again for that. Some amazing books. I mean, I was reading these books. It was like, wow, this is incredible. You know. But one of them was your book, published in um twenty thirteen in French, Le Grand Rattrapage. Okay, which is a very very interesting book about. Quebec in the 20th century, uh, you know, and some of the economic growth that took place there. But what I wanted to do is my students will be sort of familiar with um, that story through their history classes, right? They've grown up, they've gone to school. So before you get to, like, I'd like you to explain your main thesis there. Could you steel man the conventional view about the Catholic Church and the way that the Quebec society functioned from about... 1900 up to say 1960 or 1965 like just imagine you're one of these people at Radio Canada you know who are like really smart and everything and they they know things and they're going to explain why everything was horrible for French Canadians during that period uh okay uh is that hard is that, I apologize if it's so there are multiple the reason I'm I'm struggling a bit is that there's multiple steel mans that I could make on their side and each of them they would agree with the some degrees of variance represents their particular views but i will try to draw the one that is a common denominator across all sides it is that pre-1960 and we can disagree about how strong of a break point 1960 is quebec is a highly conservative society with strong anti-status reflexes, strong clerical uh, uh, influence. Religious. Reli church. Yeah, by yeah. clerical, right. I don't mean clerical work. I mean right. religious, like clerical. Right. Sorry, yeah. I think I made a, a Franglish translation. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So highly religious organization of, of social activities, limited intervention by the state into pretty much every sectors. And backwards okay and what i mean by backwards uh this is where the steel manning has to be there's multiple versions some will say that quebec had a generally and this is where i will be a bit cruel is what they perceive as modern is whether or not you have a strong uh developed state so if you were backwards that's because you had a very small state doing very very few stuff uh, but the one thing they will agree, and that I actually also agree with, is that up to a certain point, and maybe on the dating we can disagree, is that Quebec was also an exceptionally poor society within North America. So, And it's important here to say within North America, because my expertise is as an economist is to do economic history. So I study, I recreate data from the distant past, and it has to be understood that Quebec has always been a rich society by global standards. Yeah. going as far back as the colonial period. So it is a rich place globally. But North America is 
historically the richest place in the world. Period. Uh, uh, even today, like people forget this, but Black Americans who are the poorest uh, of the lot in North America are in the top ten percent of the world globally. Like there are exceptionally rich people. The United States, the rest of Canada, Quebec are exceptionally wealthy society by global standards. There's no way around it. But within North America, French Canadians were the poor group. So you can think of uh, the French Canadian when people were thinking of backwards. What we're describing is the poor of the rich. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is, it's never been that kind of a poor society the way we think of poor as we would think of, say, Russia to the, Russia in 1900 or Sub-Saharan Africa for an extreme yes. example, right? Yeah. So right. Quebec was yeah. always a very rich society. Uh, but within the group of the rich people, especially since it makes the contrast particularly stark, uh, it made it look like, wow, what a bunch of uh, backwards, uh, what a backward society. Uh, and that's the picture people draw. That is the best mm-hmm. simple steel man I can do of their their arguments. And then yeah. the other the other steel man is that the nineteen sixty and afterwards is the rise of a more interventionist state uh with a strong francophone majority that is able to uh direct economic development uh and promote education in a way that uh creates a very rapid process of convergence that's the that's the best that's deal steel man yeah. yeah a couple of things i just mentioned quickly before you go on to your thesis it's, it's very interesting people don't understand that north america is really richer i mean there's a few points one i heard is that if you took the 50 million Afro-Americans, Black Americans, and you separated them out as a nation, right? That would be the richest group of people of African descent in the world. Yes. Right? So people don't is... understand this. They think, oh, Blacks, and but by American standard standards, Blacks are, are poorer on average yes. than the other Americans. And that's, right? and that's, that's yeah. the reason that some people, and we're opening a small parenthesis here, why some people would call this the tragedy of the United States, is that uh, the United States has is exceptional in a very great number of ways in terms of its institutions. So, and the part that's kind of fascinating is, and this is the the economist uh, Walter Williams, who was here at Mason. Brilliant economist, yeah, passed Brilliant away. Economy, yeah, a great pedagogue. More importantly, yeah. students still revere him decades after they have had him in their class. Walter William was an African African American economist from Philly, uh, with a very strong personality. He was, he was six foot three, and oh wow, I didn't William know that said that the yeah. worst thing that ever happened to his ancestors, to his great grandparents, was to become was to come to America. The great thing that happened to his grandparents was to be born in America. Yeah, and in that he conveyed this great tragedy of the United States, which is. It is a land whose institutions are so insanely good at promoting economic development, at promoting individual betterment, and that at the same time, it was denied to some. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's the tragedy because you can't, you can imagine counterfactuals in your head where you would have uh, the richest group of that 
the the U.S. would be a much richer place than it would be the case, a much less fractious place than would be the place had the ideals of uh, of American institutions been extended to everyone equally. Uh, that's the well. They were. The they have been. They have been. They have but, been. I mean, yeah. to have been consistently right. and historically historically, applied, yeah, yes, yeah, to have historically been applied consistently to all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could I mean, if, if just to close the loop on on Afro-Americans is a couple of points. Uh, one is that. I, no, but it's it, it's yeah. not that these are related. Right. So remember yeah. Pierre Vallière, the very yeah. horrible Les... human being. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Les no, is... Blanc de la Mer- du Nord, I think yeah, was, I don't was... I don't want to say the name for. Uh, because... Excuse me. Yeah. I no, no, no. It's, it's I, I, I think I think the word is. Uh, I mean, I mean, I live in the U.S. and I understand why the word is not a word to use. Yeah, it is, it is I apologize if anyone. No, 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 no. It's, it's, I, it's, yeah. It is for people who maybe not are listening and are not uh, Canadians. Uh, in French, the word, the N word doesn't yeah. carry any uh, aggressive derogative meaning. It is meant as a purely descriptive word that has fallen into disuse uh today it is yeah. not meant as yeah. a slur it has never been used as a slur but the the word is uh has been now understood as a slur so people who don't understand where this eight million people in north america speak differently uh it's it's easier just to say not say it in this case but yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, valier who is let's remember a very violent man uh and i say this as a guy who has some sympathy for the separatist movement in quebec uh uh, separatists like to compare themselves a lot to black Americans. Uh, so his title, the white ends of America uh, is the idea that uh, uh, French Canadians were as poor as black Americans and were as poorly educated as black Americans. Uh, and to a high degree, this is true. So if you compare the living standards of not perfectly true, uh but there was greater similarity than dissimilarities between the two groups relative to the richer group. They start further back. So for example, if you take the wage gap, so this is actually part of the steel man of the, or the, the more conventional thesis. If you take say the, the income of French Canadians in Quebec as a share of English Canadians in Quebec, you get that the incomes are roughly 50 to 60% of the English. So that means if an Anglo makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, a francophone would make fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. Exactly much at the same level of uh, I don't know if the same level. I don't know if it's the same level, but yeah, on average, right? Yeah, that would be on average. Not yeah. all else been equal, but on average, so right. we're not controlling. Not doing the same thing. They're not, not doing, doing the same job. It's very important thing. to point that out. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. it's the same. It's roughly the same gap as white Americans and Black Americans. And right, black. right. So so there is percent, yeah. It, there is a huge gap. You check the number of years of schooling completed. Uh, it is roughly the same percentage of less than nine years of schooling, roughly the same literacy rate, say in 1920, illiteracy rate, sorry, roughly the same. So black Americans and French Canadians were two very poor group within this really rich place uh, that was North America. And this is why some separatists like Valière, as despicable as Valière is as a person, were carrying a correct point that 
there was something uh that uh there was something that spoke to some form of perceived injustice in people's head uh for i don't i can't think of another word than injustice but that because they were so much poor there were there was some form of injustice being carried uh and I, the I comparisons think the implication that people like valier uh, you know intimate is that there's some sort of a design that somehow, like in the American case, that whites are sort of conspiring to keep blacks poor, and that in Canada, Anglos and maybe Jews, there's a lot of anti-Semitism too, that, you know, that somehow it's sort of a design, like the economy was and culture was set up in such a way that Francophones are going to end up at the bottom, and they're going to be poor. Is is that a fair statement, you think, that that, that point of view, that world view? So there is, there is a group of people who believe that, that there is some form of a design for this. But others will point out that this is so within the group of people who advertise for this, they won't blame the Anglophones. Right. They okay. will okay. blame the Francophones themselves for their political choices. So right. that, that, that right. there is that the stigma is not carried to the Anglophone. And let's be very clear. If the living standards of black Americans and French Canadians do compare, uh, there's a lot of things that don't compare. French Canadians, there's no lynch mobs going against right. French Canadians. <laughs> yeah, it's a very good There point. is no yeah. legal discrimination against French Canadian. There are no black codes against them. There are no uh there are no restrictions on their legal ability to leave a particular place and work elsewhere. So let's make this very clear. And this probably tells you why at least in one of the earlier the earlier steel mans i drew up for that you requested yeah that the most aggressive separatists who argue that there was some form of designs it's it, i don't think that holds just because you can look at african americans and you realize that they are doing uh as well or as poorly if you want they're doing as poorly as french canadians in spite of aggressive and systemic legal discrimination against them. Like we're talking, this is Jim Crow era. This is the yeah, era where they right. are. Pre-1960 Southern United States. Yeah, this is pre-civil yeah. rights era. Yeah. This is before Martin Luther King. This right, is when right, right, right. there are, clear. like there is. Set the There's legal of, discrimination against yeah, blacks the state in, in, in a large portion of the United States. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. So I, this doesn't exist in Quebec. Yeah. And the fact that it yeah. doesn't exist and it, and that the differences are roughly the same tells me that's something else. So that's the factor is not a deliberate legal system yeah. that's discriminating against the group because those are two groups that, in theory, if that were the difference, then French Canadians should have been at a much higher level because yes. there was no legal discrimination. Something else is going on. There, there. is there's another yeah. process that's going right. on. That's or why other the things, other yeah. the other groups of that I criticize would argue that it's education. Yeah, that the the way the education system was set up in Quebec actually discouraged uh, the accumulation of human capital and had the adverse effect of of setting French Canadians on a different course. And it had nothing. It was not a deliberate intent to 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 hurt them. And the fact is, that as soon as educational reforms were enacted, French Canadians converged very rapidly. Okay. I want to come back to the convergence in a minute, but just to stick to this period. Um, so just to close it, a big part of it is, I think, uh, one of the things I hear a lot from French Canadians in particular is this story that, you know, the Catholic Church basically was this sort of 
thing that was very, you know, dominant. And there was this imposition, especially on women to have lots of children. And if you look at it from an e economic perspective, a group of people that has many children by definition is going to be poorer than a group of people that has a smaller number. No, no, I disagree with no? that. Is that not true? Yeah. No, that I, I have a, I have a strong disagreement. With really? That okay. Claim. Just, can I just outline why I think that? Because yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, it's, it, I just want to say, like, if I, if I make $50,000 a year and I have, and I, and I'm, you know, and I have a wife and one child, then we have $50,000 split three ways. If I make $50,000 a year and I have two children, it goes four and five and six and seven. So doesn't it fall? Like I look at groups that are considered poorer, like Hispanics, they have high rates of numbers of children and young people, right? Yeah, but, Is that but not a reasonable assumption? And the French Canadians had very, very high rates. Yeah, but, but you're, 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 you're getting correlation and causation. Okay. Pardon me. Yeah. Please, no, 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 please no, explain. It's, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, let's remember uh, the larger the size, there are economies of scale in households. So if I get an extra, if I, if, if there's an extra person that joins my household, we're not going to increase spending by right. a full, the by rent the value. stays the same. The heating so, stays the same. That there's even economies of, of scales in cooking. Uh, for example, like I don't need to cook as much. I can cook like a much larger meal uh, and it lasts like I can do like larger portions. I can buy in bulk. There's economies of scales in large That's numbers. Interesting. Yeah. So this I'm is sorry. why, like, so first of all, it, the cost of an extra person to a household is should is not as high as, as, as it's as it's not a simple percentage addition. It actually the percentage diminishes yes. because you're saving money on all these yes. other things. Yeah, so this right. means I understand. The, yeah, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, uh, kids are a form of wealth. So later on, they first of all they work. Uh, eventually, they can provide a form of retirement savings for you. They can help you out. Uh, so that's like a first thing so that there is like an upside to this, uh, uh, also family and kin create networks and networks have, so I know you've had Mike Munger on and I sure he said transaction costs. <laughs> A million times because the answer I, I, never I think know the what, entire podcast was the answer is transaction costs. Right? Yes. So yeah, that that's actually he's actually correct on that. He is correct. I don't know what yeah. the answer is, but transaction costs is the answer. Uh uh and uh, if you have a tightly knit kin network, um transaction costs go down. Yes, right? so there's yeah, upsides right. to family yeah. size. Um uh, that's extremely yeah. interesting, Vance. I appreciate you explaining that because that's something I had never thought of before in that calculation of more children. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, really cool. Yeah. So there is, there is that. Uh, so I, I would, I would push back against the the, the religious explanation. I okay. Think, so okay. in presenting my, yeah, I, I just why, wanted, yeah, you could, yeah, please explain your counter to that whole thesis. Yeah. So the the counter is that there's a series of dissonant notes in the data. So the book has stuff that I I didn't say then that I've been able to document since and work more on. So this, the book was a first step onto something. And uh, and by the way, the 10th anniversary of it uh, edition is now online. So this is, there's the, if you go on Amazon and look for the Grand Attrapage ou Déclin Tranquille, and you, uh, you want to. It's an excellent uh, book, Vincent. Like, well, I'm not only that, I'm very yeah. happy to say that I, I bought back the rights from my, from my editor. Uh, okay. Um, 
and so that I could edit it myself in the future, put it on self-publish on Amazon. And later Ooh. on, as time wow. would go by, I could make it cheaper and more accessible, uh, but also be able to take parts of it for a forthcoming book that I'm writing for. Okay. Wow. So it's a work in progress. There's some stuff in it that's not there. But the part that's in the book, I'll tell you this part first. Number one, uh, the dates, the 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 convergence process doesn't start in 1960. Uh, from 1870 to 1920, Quebec's living standards increased, but much more slowly than the rest of Canada. So Quebec, actually, people don't notice, but people, Quebec starts at Confederation with incomes that are between 85 and 90 percent of those in the rest of Canada. Wow. I'm sorry. Not, not, sorry. not the rest of Canada. Ontario. Ontario. So That's amazing. That is not, amazing to know. And we're, we were richer than the Maritime Provinces. Wow. From That's then to 1920, Quebec grows, but it grows much more slowly. Than the rest of Canada, so by 1920 we're as poor as uh, the Maritimes. So we converge to them in terms of relative standing, and we are at somewhere between 55 and 65 percent of the income of Ontarians. So there is a process. Now it's important. This is a relative process. Uh, it's not that our absolute living, our income fails. It's just that our incomes increase more slowly than those of Ontarians for the period from 1870 to 1920. Then there is a stagnation. We stay at in that 55 to 65 range until 1945. But from 1945 onwards, we're converging. And in fact, if you... Very quickly. Lost, very that's quickly. Only 50, yeah, that's only 15 years up to 1960, right? Yeah, and from yeah. 1945 to 1975, it's the same pace of convergence. Wow. If you plot everything, there is no break. There is no difference in the pre-60 and the post-60. We're converging at the same pace. The real and more important date seems to be happening sometimes in, in the 40, which is when we're starting to converge. And you're not just seeing it in the average of the population. So I have some articles that have since been published where what you see is actually that the living standards of, for example, francophones start converging with anglophones from 1940, from the census of 1941 onwards um, with Jason Dean of uh, King's University College in Ontario. And Jason's a really good economist. Uh, we tested out, okay, what happens if we hold constant for education, for years of experience? for bilingualism because it's important to understand that for francophones one way to earn extra was not to go to school an extra year was to speak english yeah uh so yeah. learning in learning english actually had the same effect as two years of education wow in our calculations so if you so francophones and you could see that there was until 1941 for example a rising rate of bilingualism amongst francophones francophones would learn english as a substitute to going to school um to access so employment opportunities, exactly. even within Quebec, they, they exactly. could raise their economic status by by having English as a yeah, or just yeah. like making business with English people, right, have right, a greater pool. yeah, yeah. Uh, so you see that in 1941, things invert. Francophones stop 
becoming bilingual at the same rate. Huh. You start seeing uh -huh. Anglophones becoming bilinguals. <laughs> Uh, in 1941, did you say? From the trend starts in 1941. Wow, that's so from way the 1941 the, the official bilingualism of the 60s and 70s. Yes. The way the story is told, right? So the way we we tell it in the the in in my work is what mattered was education, and the right. big reform that people don't know happened was that in 1943, Quebec was the last province to adopt compulsory schooling laws, and this seems like it's it's a like a strange point to make, but it's the only one that explains why the convergence would have picked up at this time. All the other provinces had adopted compulsory schooling laws many decades before, like multiple decades before. Quebec is the last place that adopts compulsory schooling and also makes it uh, uh, cost like a zero priced compulsory schooling. So you parents don't have to pay to go to school. And it's not necessarily the compulsory schooling that's making the effect is that before what you had was that the church had a monopoly on schooling. And the point of schooling in that case was to uh, use education as a vehicle to resist cultural assimilation, not accumulate human capital. Mm, removing so what basically what you did Can we translate you, that for people just so people understand what you mean it, the, the fear yeah. was that if education so that that was the bargain at confederation why did the province end up provinces end up with powers over education the federal has none of it and why there's no like department of education at the federal level in canada is because the bargain was we will support francophones will support confederation if you guys give up education at the federal level so that you guys don't try to assimilate us. Using the education system as, exactly. as an assimilation mechanism into the English language. Yeah, like exactly. not to that, do, yeah. That is the true bargain of confederation. Yeah. It yeah. is that we are going to, you're going, so what the trade was, and I call it the confederacy of beggars, this is a work in progress that I have, <laughs> is francophones who used to be free traders traded their support for free trade. So they became, they supported the protectionist conservatives in exchange for education remaining in the hands of the Catholic Church and not in the hands of the federal government so that basically we could resist cultural assimilation by by Anglophone. That was the bargain of confederation. Okay. The down effect of that is you gave a monopoly to the church. Uh, to the church yeah. on education and the point was not to acquire skills. In the 40s, when you get the adoption of compulsory schooling laws, the state still is a monopolist, but the difference is that now it's a monopolist whose main goal is to promote human capital. So, I mean, I would have preferred if you had just broken the monopoly and allowed everyone to engage in entrepreneurship and education and have like something like vouchers. But in terms of a swap, it was a better swap. You were trading a bad monopoly for a less bad monopoly. Right. Uh, right. And that happens sometimes in history. But from there, you can observe like a series of things. Younger Francophones have massively higher rates of high school and university completion. They start joining the workforce. In fact, when you break, so I have an article with Julien Gagnon, Marie-Pierre Isabelle, where we break the people from the different censuses by age cohort. So when were they born? And we realize that uh, there is no convergence of francophones and anglophone within age cohorts so what happens is that the old francophones 
stay at 45 to 50, uh, 55 to 65% of the old Anglophones. But the younger ones are catching up. So what you find is that uh, over time, the like so a person born in, say, 1910 or 1920, by the time it's the 1940 census, he earns 50% of the Anglophone. By the 1951 census, that guy born in 1910 or 1920 also earns the same proportion. So there's no change. But for the younger ones, what you realize is that there's like a like a staircase convergence. Uh, so the children older, start doing better. And they the they start doing better. Yeah. And you observe the people who are born fully into the cohort that's affected by the 43 reform of compulsory schooling. So those who were like were of the age of maybe dropping out, okay, uh, in in that group, you realize that by 1960, so by the time we observed them in 19, sorry, the time we observed them in the 1971 census, the kids are fully, fully equal to the English. Mm -hmm. So in 1971, within the young Francophone group, there is no socioeconomic differences between wow. French and English. That's so the convergence is completed in the nineteen the nineteen forty three to seventy one period, and it's just that older people have a harder time. I mean, at fifty years of age, you're not going to go back to school. It's yeah, yeah. it's 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 there's like a kind of a sunk cost that's there, and it sucks. But for the young kids, for the younger ones, the reform has a huge effect, and so the convergence of if you look at the convergence of income of francophones to anglophones. In Quebec, it's largely explained by basically that in 1941, what you have is mostly uh, a lot of uh, people born before the reform. And as you move in time, you have more and more people born after the reform. And it causes what looks like a convergence uh, that's continuous over time. But what you really had in practice was a big change at a particular BERT cohort people affected by the educational reforms. So the real start date of Quebec's convergence is 43 to, uh, it starts in 1943. And that really changes everything else from there because the convergence starts in a period where the state does very little. Quebec still has a very small government relative to the rest of Canada. It has insanely lower taxes than the rest of Canada. It has higher rates of entrepreneurship that, that would work. amaze most pe modern listeners who know anything about Canada, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah, but yes. And I think it still amazes like a lot of people when I tell and them that. Just Quebec to be clear to our younger listeners, Quebec is known in Canada for a very large um, welfare state. And it has, as I understand it, entrepreneurship rates are probably better, in, especially in Western Canada and Ontario yep. and so on, than they are in Quebec and all Taxes that. are higher as Taxes well, are regular. much higher in Quebec. Yeah, exactly. So the, the the and this the, was the opposite in the 1940s and 50s. Yep, yep. Quebec right. had a okay. very small. Quebec government. was more entrepreneurial. It had less state intervention. It was more vital in many respects. Right. Yes. Yeah. But, but the reason why this changes is that in the earlier Steelman I gave you, the date is 1960 that starts the convergence with the with the rise of a more interventionist state that uh, starts participating more actively in the economy. In the story I just told you, the convergence started well before then, and mm -hmm. it did, yeah. and it didn't need a state. It didn't need <laughs> a strong estate. 
So it's yeah. removing causal weight to the, the the quiet revolution that starts in 1960. In fact, the way I put it in my work is the quiet revolution is a product of the convergence that happened. Right, it's reversed. Is It's reversed. It's not reversed. a causal yeah. effect. It is a caused effect. It is the result of a previous series of events. And that's, the. it's not, it doesn't cause anything. In fact, I have a, a paper I'm revising with one of my graduate students. And we use a, I don't want to bore your listeners with a particular crazy econometric method, but we're able to simulate what Quebec would have looked like. So we asked the question, does the quiet, did the quiet revolution matter? And uh, we check on indicators like uh, income per capita, income per household, wages per worker, uh, life expectancy, years of schooling. So we're taking all of these variables and we're putting them in all together. And we say, okay, we're going to use the other provinces to create a best predictor uh, from 1943 to 1960. We're going to try to see the one that really matches the data. And afterwards, we're going to use that prediction to say Quebec is the only one that gets the quiet revolution. Okay. That supposedly is Quebec different than this weird counterfactual we created. So we're going to compare the real data with the one that's based on the past data. And what we find is that there's no difference. Mm. There is no difference. Quebec doesn't pick up faster because of after 1960, in terms of income, it doesn't pick up faster in times of life expectancy. It doesn't pick up faster in terms of school enrollments. We find nothing. It has yeah. the only thing that we find a really strong causal effect that something really did change in 1960. Something like meaningfully was altered was the size of government. I, it's the only thing that changes. And I just want to say something quickly about what you're saying. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to make it clear to listeners because I think many people believe that societies are wealthy because the government puts in laws like minimum wage and work protections. And, and so like, like we live in a really developed society in, in, in Quebec or in wherever, in Western Europe or whatever. But what you're saying is that it's exactly the opposite, that in order to have all the social programs and all that stuff, you need to have an economic development in the first place, right? Yes, I would actually say this. I So this is work that other people have done, but that the welfare state, okay, let me do like a quick distinction here. I make a very strong distinction between intervention in the economy. So that's regulation, Monop like state-created monopolies, uh, tariffs. Uh, I distinguish those from redistribution. Right. I think right. intervention, there's yeah. a strong case to be made that these make things worse on like 90%, 90% of cases that it's hard to sustain that they're good. Redistribution has a harder case against it to make because there's ways in which redistribution can stimulate economic growth in some ways uh, by promoting opportunities for people who are born in poor places. So if like, for example, if the transfer is about allowing a person who is cash constrained to finance education, that's actually a good thing. It's going to promote right, development right. in this way. So the case, the empirical case against the welfare state is not as strong as some libertarians would, would <laughs> want to have it. Fair enough. Uh, however, the thing that's very clear is that the origins of the welfare state are always in the sense that there's been economic growth welfare states are a luxury of rich societies right 
like right. very much so. You don't see welfare state emerge until you have very rich societies. Uh, so the welfare state maybe causes some extra growth, according to some. And I'm willing to have the empirical conversation on this. But let's be very clear. That one is very clearly true empirically. Welfare states exist when you are rich. That's right. Yeah, that, that's, that's the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Is that, I just wanted to yeah. make and carry that right. nuance. Okay. Um, that's that's really, really interesting. So that's, that brings us up to the modern era. We're, we're coming up on time. So I want to just cover a couple of qu things quickly. I want to talk about something uncontroversial, which is the Parti Québécois and the nationalist movement, uh, <laughs> quickly, bringing us into the modern era, because I... Um, uh, I know that uh, you. I, I follow your work on this. Your your work on, um, you know, the 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 effect of separatism. Um, I, I want to just outline the the conventional view. So just quickly, in 1976, the Parti Québécois is elected, and so that that's a a party that openly promoted, you know, the separation of Quebec into into a new country. Um, and that movement continued right. It continues to some extent into this century, although it's less popular now than it was. It marked me as a young person. I think I'm a bit older than you. I was born in 1972. Yeah, so, you are. Yeah. So I'm right. Okay. You're not going to mention your age. No, but I just want to say I remember in vivid detail the riots in 1995 on the streets of Montreal. I was actually there like and like not I wasn't rioting myself, but I witnessed people, you know, uh, Le Québec, oh Québec, what burning cars and this kind of, like it was a serious, serious thing that 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 was that was very very powerful movement, and the the standard wisdom is that this movement came along and because there was this hesitancy where where you know sort of like we don't know if we're going to elect a government that might separate all the time from 1976 up to perhaps you know 2010 or something like that there was this idea that somehow that suppressed economic growth and that economic growth was uh you know that investment and all this stuff because people were concerned about you know far leftist elements in the separatist movement and all this stuff that's the standard view that's the standard view your, your evidence that i've seen you promoting like what you put out on social media and I read some of your papers when I can seems to indicate that there was no effect because of the separatist movement that it had no there were none and yeah okay, I wonder so if before, you could explain that because no, it, it seems I, counterintuitive but I'd be very happy to because weirdly enough um so I did tell you that I'll give a caveat to your listeners I have some separate separatist sympathies um and they were there before I wrote the paper I'm about to talk about, uh, but they have been strong. They have been strengthened by <laughs> my own result. I didn't expect. Yeah. I didn't expect what I found. Okay, so let's be very clear. I'm still. I was initially puzzled, but the more I think about it, the more I think what I say makes sense. So that's why I'm going to start with why we can expect that there's no effect. So when we look at separatism generally around the world, separatist movements are economically costly. But it's not because they're separatists. It's because most of the time they're violent. That's either because it's the only mean, it's the mean they think they have to push for reform, to push for political exit, or it's the one that they're obliged to go into by virtue of the existing government. So, for example, why is it that in Catalonia, 
you had, uh, or in the Basque country, you had terrorist wings for all intents and purposes. It's because the Spanish government says that Spain is a one and an indivisible country. And it makes that any political option that includes like democratic option are not going to be on the table, right? So you're going to have that a separatist movement is going to be violent. In the case of the Kurds in Turkey, of course it's going to be violent because, well, Turkey's not a democracy. It's like it's a very much like an anocracy where you have a very strong authoritarian ruler. And trust me, if the Kurds want to leave, the government will send in the army. So the separatist movement is violent. In these settings, separatism is costly. But in liberal democracies, Scotland, Canada, uh, that's not an option. Tomorrow morning, if Quebecers vote to leave Canada, federal government's not going to send in the army. They're not. They're just not going to. Under democratic setting, you have to convince voters to do this. You have to, like, by virtue of like being under a democratic setting, you have to convince the voters. So that means that you have to do one of two things. If you're the, if you're the, if you're a member of the separatist coalition, you have to minimize by any means possible the cost and the perceived cost of exit. So that means that you get the story of what happened to the PQ from 1968 to 1976 is the entire exercise that René Lévesque conducted was to marginalize the radicals. He kicked out Pierre Bourgault, who made speeches in favor of Mao and saying that we needed a cultural revolution in Quebec, filthy, disgusting human being, which I still don't understand as being... A, a I, I saw him speak once at a UCAM. He's a, he, was, yeah, he, was, he made speeches in the Very 70s. powerful speaker. Indeed, uh, indeed. But he did say that uh, we needed to have a cultural revolution yeah, like Mao yeah. had in China. And it he was, was a hard leftist. Yeah. A very hard leftist. You yeah. also had uh, the members of the FLQ who were terrorists. Let's not lie. Some were um, exiled from Canada, you could yeah, say. The or, Rose, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the Rose brothers. Uh, so what you had went was to a, Cuba. Some of them went to Cuba and they were which, the, the kids were raised in Cuba and then they came back and all this which, stuff. Yeah. Which should tell you something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to tell you something, but René Lévesque does spend most of the 70s trying to marginalize these radicals. In the process, what he's trying to do is say, look, separation is not going to be costly. Yeah. To prove it to you, I'm going to kick out people who are helping me do it. I'm going to kick them yeah. out of the movement. I'm going to marginalize them so much that they're not going to do any. They're not going to participate in the conversation. And all the hardcore separatists hated René Lévesque for doing this. They yeah. hated him. That's uh, right. Yeah, it's the true. only situation then, so the separatists have to commit themselves to win. In order to win, they have to commit themselves to being, peaceful. to offer a, a, not only peaceful, but a low-cost way of exit. Yeah, right. They cannot right. win election if they don't credibly do this, or alternatively, if the other side, the non-separatist camps, or the federalists here, don't do something that make it costlier to stay within the polity. So if the right. other one does something, makes a really bad mistake, then you're increasing the odds of separation, holding constant the perception of the cost of separation, mm. right? But the other side control, control essentially what you want to think is the federalists control the benefits to some degree uh, of, of, of staying or leaving, uh, if they promise, and this is why you have every time there will be talk of a referendum, 
the federal government will always commit to act berserkly. They will mm-hmm. promise to act in the most aggressive fashion possible that we will take out the jets. You will not be included in the union. Your money, don't expect anything from us. Everything will have to be negotiated. Doing this increases the perception of cost of leaving. Right, right. And the separatists have no control over that over that behavior. It is the rational behavior of the federal government in that case. So the only thing that separatists can control is what they do and what they do to affect costs. You can't win elections if you don't credibly commit to reduce cost of separation more than the other one promises to increase them. By definition, that means that there should be no effect of if a PQ government wins an election, there should be no effect because it means that the, theoretically they've convinced and people expect lower cost that they don't expect that this will be a costly move. Right, right. And when we run with the data, we find exactly that. So that's confirmed. All, right. Yeah, that is confirmed. There is every every election, Quebec behaves, its GDP per capita evolves at the same pace as what the theory would expect in the long run. So there is no net loss. There is no net gains, by the way. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the, the one, only thing... Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, one of the things that I've noticed that the, the separatist side did that I think in retrospect, possibly, and even at the time, could be considered a bit of a mistake on this, was they, they tried so hard to lower the cost that they made promises to main things that they thought would appease... Uh, voters who you know to, yeah, but this, so this they wouldn't where... be, no no but the two are important one is that we could continue to use the dollar which how they could ensure that is not clear the other is really the most important thing i think which really a, a nation is a country is defined by its armed forces right canada has a very long and storied military tradition that includes french canadians that have been involved in that for hundreds of years at this point and it was always assumed that we would be under the defense umbrella of the Canadian, where we would just be part of that. And I, it's sort of based on this idea of the European Union. And I, I think that in my view, that was a kind of a mistake because yeah, if you want to is... tap into really the, one of the, you know, if you're not talking about economics, the, the, the spiritual nature of why a country exists, which is really why many French Canadians support it too. Yeah, but it's this also is where, that you want to be able to defend your borders. Yeah, right? this is, but this is where I would say that it, this is you, what you're arguing for is the how to convince. I'm not stating that there is a particular way you should convince. Like I'm not stating to right. what is right. the good way to convince right. that the yeah. costs are going to be minimal. You, but you cannot make that exercise without convincing Canadians, Quebecers, that the costs of the transition are going to be minimal relative to the alternative. Right. Uh, right. And that's why you should expect, at least, especially if the referendum fails, that you should see no effect on output because people have priced in the promises mm-hmm. that have been mm-hmm. made. If they're not credible, they will have been priced in. If they're credible, they will also have been priced in. So people right. will behave in right. a particular way. Uh, and it will be priced in if the promises are not credible by the fact that they'll lose the election. And if they right. win, yeah. it's been priced in by the fact that they win the election. On GDP, there will be no effect mm-hmm. uh, uh, either way. So That's the fascinating. It's really way there fascinating. There's no effect. Yeah. If afterwards, people were like, if they're deceited, 
into so the separate let's say like we'll, we'll we'll oversimplify the federal the separatists promised one thing and then they do the opposite thing and people voted on the premise of the promise being held and and then they don't do it then yeah that could be costly in the instance of a fail of a, a past secession but in that case the cost is not the secession per se but the reneged promise yeah right so it's not the same causal effect you're capturing it's the effect of you didn't convince you you convinced them on a basis and then lied and then reneged that argument for separation and people had priced it in knowing that it wouldn't be costly that's the point i make and yeah. i i Again, as I said, I have separate separatist sympathy. Yeah, I understand. And I think that the 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 answer, and I tell this to every separatist, is the best thing you can do to tell people that this will not be a crazy adventure is you just say, and it's gonna sound weird from a separatist to say this, just say you're gonna keep the monarchy. Yeah, just say that the we're, we're gonna, becomes a parliamentary democracy. We're keeping the exact yeah. we're keeping yeah. the exact same. Yeah sets of institution that we have labored under since 1791. We have had British parliamentary institutions since 1791 in Quebec. We will stay under British parliamentary institution. We will not be a republic. We will remain a member and we can vote on this 20 years from now. Yeah. Now we remain a, or something like this. We remain, we keep the exact same set of institutions. The only thing we are going to vote upon is whether or not we want to keep these historical traditions that we have inside the greater polity that is Canada or outside of it. The minute they say something like that, people will be like, holy shit, they're not promising crazy revolution. They're saying yeah. we're deciding in or within or without. Well, well, one, th- one, thing, one thing I can say about this is your, your generation, I assume you're born in the 80s, Yes, is that um, your generation was really the last one um, among uh, among francophones as a generality in the population that was interested in this. Yes, because I can, I I can tell you among the young, I'm around young um, French Canadians and those who are descended of other backgrounds, among all of them, except for, a, I would say, five or 10% of my francophone de Souche students are really into it. And the rest of them are just, they don't care. They're not interested. It's Pepper, you know, talks about Les Anglais or something and they don't yeah. know. And they, right. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's, it's just, it's, they're not, and I don't know why that has happened, but that has happened in this century um, as it's, a matter of. I would say it's because if you, people don't realize, but if you poll the young in Quebec, they're more conservative than people realize. That's true. Uh, yeah. uh, they're far more conservative in, in many ways. And I expect that one reason that a lot of them are not turned on by the idea of separation. And that could be. What I just said is when you promise to make Quebec to be a country that's going to be left leaning, blah, 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 <laughs> blah. With like, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate. Them. Yeah. It doesn't and, resonate. Uh, but the reality is uh, the the only way to win a referendum is to credibly tie your hands. Yeah. That's the only way separatists can win. And it's not about like committing to being free market or being socialist or anything. It's to say what you will not do. Yeah. And it, this has nothing to do with being ideological is you want to commit to the rules of the game before. Yeah. I mean, when, when we play a game, it is totally reasonable that we agree on the rules before we play the game. Yeah. And the rules don't say how the game is going to turn out. It doesn't say which team is going to win. 
it says what the other team can't do. Yeah. You can't <laughs> punch me at baseball. You can't <laughs> you can't touch yeah. the umpire. The umpire well, is off yeah. limit. Third <laughs> yeah. base means third base. Well, you can't play, you can't play hockey and baseball at the same time, right? Yeah, you, I mean, you, you can't go out on 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 ice skates with a baseball bat and and, and you know that, yeah. that's kind of so, what you're saying, right? So this is yeah. why separatists will continually lose until they forcibly say, "This is what we will not do." This is the yeah. list, and now yeah. yeah, we're going to tie our hands because we're going to keep the same constitutional apparatus that we have had from before. We're going to keep our British traditional institution. Uh, and it drives them nuts. But the reality is this is so it's perhaps the only way I what, one no, thing no, but I will. I want to say one last thing on sure. this. And this is yeah. really important. This is from my, my so I remember I'm an economic. I'm an economist who does history. The thing I point out to people is that there's something really unique about Quebec is you have a bunch of French people who are probably the most British people in the history of mankind. Yeah, yeah that's very French true. Canadians are yeah. insanely British. They are more British than the Brits in the very, and I've lived in the UK. Yeah. The French Canadians are British people. They yeah. are culturally inside a long tradition of British institutions. British institutions carry to the frontier world that is North America, where land is abundant and people are are few yeah. uh it has the features it is it is the most slash british slash american there is no more anglo-american people than the french canadians <laughs> it, it is it is a weird oddity and part of it promising yeah. to break from that that two tradition century yeah tradition yeah. culture more than two centuries at this point Two and a it's half not right something now. francophones want. I think I, it's I not think, something yeah. they'll. It's not something they're gonna jump on board. Yeah, because uh, it's just not. It's it's you're asking them to jettison what is essentially a really long and complex history. It's a part of our culture. In, yeah, uh, and this is that, why I say yeah. committing yourself to what you will not do, and this is the part in me that's more conservative than it is libertarian, is the world is improved by small tinkering on the margin radical reconstructions sometimes work but rarely sometimes do. don't no but sometimes do but more often than not end up with yeah. major ramifications in the long run well for it every american to... revolution that's a success you've got russian revolution french i don't yeah. know the french revolution is hard to gauge the haitian revolution you've got you've got multiple revolutions that ended you know yes. you could argue very badly yeah. but tinkering at the margin is a much more yeah the, the, slow the, and steady progress the burkean yeah, right? yeah i'm very much a burkean in this sense yeah. it is the slow at the slow methodical tinkering and yeah. is is much more effective than what people much less glorious, yeah. much less impressive. Nobody I, knows the name of the different prime ministers yeah. who did all those tinkering in the UK. And yeah. that's okay. And that's quite okay because in the end it ends up being a good thing that we do this tinkering. Yeah. And the I, idea for separatists going back to this is saying we're the only thing we're deciding is whether in the future we will decide as being part of Canada. Or being outside of Canada, we're not yeah. changing the other any other institutions than who we're deciding with. Yeah, I, it is I, a I, very I, modest reform. Like it is a very modest reform. It, if you it, think uh, about how I phrase. Well, it. yeah, it's it's actually it's not as modest as you think. I think, but um, but the the one thing I would say is from watching all of this over my life, I've I, 
I've developed a bit of a small theory, um, just it'll take 30 seconds to explain it, that if you look historically, there's basically only two ways that nations that have really sustained over time, whether you're talking about Belgium or the United States or Haiti or Canada, that have, have become independent nations. It's not referendum. It's always one of two ways. It's the violent revolution, the American or the Russian or the Cuban method. Or it's you were, a, 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 you know, a colony and the home country ceded you independence without asking the population. And then that has sustained for decades or possibly hundreds of years. I've I've scoured, you know, looked on the Internet to try and find a case of a country a, a, where, where people, the population voted and it was successful and then it went on. And I can't really find one. There is there is there is. Can one. you name it? Sweden and uh, Sweden and Norway. Okay, Sweden and Norway. Okay, so that's the, in my view, is, is that's the exception that proves the rule. From uh, Belgium, right. from Haiti, from from but, uh, the United there's States. There's another one that from, came up know. recently. It's Serbia and Montenegro. Okay, fair enough. There are. I'm. I'm not saying it was absolute. I'm just saying. No, that it's just. It is much harder. Cases, yeah. It is much harder in democratic setting. It's much harder. And it also, one of the things that you see in places like you mentioned Scotland and in Canada is that it creates this acrimony in the population where, because let's say you can, you can, you can get, you can convince over 50% or even 60% of the population to, to be in favor. You still got 40% of your people who really didn't want to do it. Like really didn't want it. Yeah. But I would, and that, and if you have a war, and people have to choose a side, then okay, then the people either who don't like it are going to leave, just like the loyalists left the United States. Yeah, but Those, you, you, people like me, I will get on board and say, oh, all right, fine, I'm a Quebecois and I'll get on your side or whatever, you know, okay. And okay, it so forces you, people to choose a side, right? I'll, I'll you do know? something thought provoking. And, and again, I think we, y y y you'll see what I, okay, let me, let me, let me run with this with you. Okay. The only reason Canada is still a nation that's united is because they're separatist inside it. <laughs> that's an interesting theory. The reason why is so I'm not only an economist who does history, I'm a public choice theorist. So I study the emergence of institutions and how they withstand from the vantage point of constraints on government that keep them from, because this is important that constitutions are constraints, but they're just pieces of paper. Right. Pieces of paper right. mean nothing unless, unless they're observed, right? Unless, yeah. no, unless there's some form of enforcement mechanism. Enforcement, that's what I mean, yeah. And yeah. Uh, the thing that makes the Canadian Constitution work in some ways, the fact that there's a group of people that promise to leave. <laughs> every time, every time the federal government wants to overstep <laughs> its boundaries, the separatists <laughs> promise to leave, and so it keeps the federal government in check. That's so interesting, clearly, yeah. Clearly enough, the reason Canada works for some reason is that there's this disgruntled minority that loses every time. And yet, weirdly enough, and this probably pisses them off to no end, is that they're actually what makes Canada stick together. Is As long as they're a credible threat to the, the continuation well, of the union, uh, what you have is a, a check on federal power. Uh, but not only that, the, the presence of, of, of one in four people in Canada or one in five, one in four, whatever it is, who are francophone, defines can like canada would not be canada without that it just i, I can't imagine what canada would yeah, but be. That's, be something else it might be an interesting country of some kind but it would not be the canada that i understand yeah, i won't i won't lie i don't find right? the rest of canada that interesting the only yeah neither canada do i but uh, you know it's, it's I'm, I'm just saying i'm just saying that 
that, you know, all of the ways that people think about Canada, at some point in the top 10 things that you would name as Canadian, it would come up with the duality there would enter yes. it, right? But, it would just, it's, but, it's a part of our, our national character, right? But the duality runs deeper is my point. Yeah, the duality is what, weirdly enough, creates a de facto system of checks and balances. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, it's like... Compromise, saying, right? I mean, it's... Uh, more, right? than, more than just compromise, it's, I really want to say check and balances because... Like, if you check the first 20 years of Canadian Confederation, the federal government really tries yeah. to trespass well above and beyond its its original power. It consistently tries to do so. And it is only when Quebec tries to push back. The other provinces do, but... Sometimes they do. Alberta and Newfoundland, particularly Alberta, I think. Yeah, uh, Alberta right years. now is really yeah. doing this. But each time, but Quebec had long an ability to push back in a particularly Quebec is way. bigger, more powerful, it's, has it's more people, bigger, right? But also yeah. could also more convincingly promise to leave. That's right. That's because right. Because the French yeah. minority wouldn't have a problem saying, yeah, no, we're on our own now. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it, they have a less harder time to say this. So each time the federal government want to trespass over its power, I guarantee you that, like, especially if you're like a free market person, like who thinks small government is a good thing, if the separatist movement had for some reason not existed in 1960, uh, Canada's central government would be massively larger than otherwise yeah, would be the case. So I uh, that that thing is like people think think that fractionalization inside a society is bad. It can be, but it can also be highly positive. If it complements existing constitutional mechanism by acting as a safeguard well, for it, it forces people to be on their toes, is what you're saying. It forces you can't just let things slide if you've got a threat all the time. You have to be careful, right? Yes. You have to kind of maintain things. Yeah, this is why also I always I always say this laws are just pieces of paper. In, they yeah, have they have yeah. no power, like constitutions have no power. Unless they reflect, they have embedded inside them some form of because they're just de jure, so they're just That's, legal papers. And there's always, there's always, yeah. there's always the old line from Pompey Magnus in ancient Rome: "Why do you quote laws to us who have swords?" Uh, <laughs> it's it is yeah. it has been like this quote that has stuck with me for years. It's a great uh, quote. It 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 conveys everything we need to know. The only thing that prevents that makes laws work or constitutions work is that there is some form of de facto enforcement mechanism that is outside the law, but complements it. Yeah. Uh, or, and, or the guys with swords are on the sides of the law. That's right. Yeah, Or another way. That, right. Yeah. That there's one right. group of people with swords that can attack the other group with swords. And so a piece <laughs> of paper says something about swords, but then the, the other parties actually create like a self-enforcement mechanism. Exactly. Constitutions yeah. work because they have yeah. this. Canada's constitution is working probably because there is a sep there's a group who can potentially separate from the rest of Canada. It is the yeah. great it is the great Canadian paradox. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Vince, I I know we got to close it out. So here, here's what I'm going to do for the last minute or two. Um, I I have a number of other things that I want to list here that maybe we could get to in a future podcast. Um, one is your work on supply management. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I saw you blow your lid once in French. Uh, it was the most hilarious thing. You were on TV in French, and and you were talking, yeah. about, you know. And I remember you you, you literally pete pete ta You know, you just yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm really, I have a temper. 
<laughs> it was great. So, so that's something I'd like to get into. The other is just like the next time, if if you would agree in the future at some point uh, to talk again, we've basically brought Canada, I suppose, up to you know the the twenty first century in this discussion about the separatist movement and. I'd like to, if possible, in the future, to talk about some of the current challenges in Canada, Quebec and Canada, to do with um, slowing down of, you know, the, the the United States appears to be advancing more rapidly than we are at this point. This is something you may know something about, uh, you know. Um, would that be interesting for you to talk about? I'd be about happy to. Okay, listen, I it's just been such a pleasure, man. I mean, I I really I, I miss you, man. I and every time I see you when you're here, it's always fun. We haven't seen each other that much, but it's always interesting and we'll make sure Mike organizes something. Okay, yeah, he and I do a thing sometimes. I know you've tried to come to those where uh, you know, we get together a bunch of us, we have our little um group that we, you know, pretend to, you know, be the masters of the universe and yes, you know, yes. this kind of thing. Apparently, and you fit right in. Have, libertarians have so much influence, apparently. What's that? Apparently, the people who are libertarians have insane. Oh, yeah. We're dominating. We're killing yeah. it. And, you know, in Washington and everything. I yep. Mean, you know, yep, 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 yep. Look at Mike Munger. He's practically president, right? Uh, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, in his, in his, in his criticism, because I like Mike, uh, but I saw so thus I have to criticize him because I like him. Uh, he did run for governor, which he, is the, he, he also didn't he for the Libertarian Party, right? Yes. Yeah. Sometime in the 2000s, he did run for governor of North Carolina. Uh, and for that, that is the greatest thing on his record, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> OK, Vincent, listen, so let's let's try and make that happen in a couple of months. This course, I'm, I'm building material for this course, and this is, is really, really helpful. So I want to just say thank you again. And I really it was a pleasure. It. All right, man. Cheers. Take it easy.